We went from having a cup of coffee or something and talking to somebody to five minutes later dealing with a multi-polytrauma patient that you, know, you haven't had any time to deal with the environment. I didn't know where anything was. I didn't know the people that I was working with. We ended up doing procedures, putting chest tubes in, intubating them, ran blood, ran total IV sedation. We did all of this inside of 30 minutes. And there was a medevac we put him on and took him to the next level and on to the next patient. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome retired Army Major and Physician Assistant William Vashis to WarDocs. Major Vashis served in the Army Special Forces in many capacities over his 34-year career. After a successful enlisted career in the 75th Ranger Regiment and 1st and 3rd Special Forces Group, he left the Army to attend Wake Forest School of Medicine Physician Assistant course. Following his PA certification, he returned to the Army for a deployment to Iraq and two deployments to Afghanistan as part of Special Forces. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear how Bill developed the special operator level clinical ultrasound, Sulcus, training into a critical operational ultrasound program in the DOD. He also discusses his role in developing prolonged field care guidelines and the development and implementation of telemedicine and teleconsultation on the battlefield. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl, and I'm joined by Army vascular surgeon, Dr. Kevin Neary. Today, we're privileged to welcome retired Army major and physician assistant, Bill Vashis to Wardocs. Bill, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Happy to be here. So Bill, your Army career did not start with you entering medicine. You actually enlisted in 1984. Tell us about your pathway to joining the military. The military was probably my way out of where I was. I was, I was a horrible high school student. I was a athlete. And so I didn't focus a lot on my schooling. I did well in classes, but not GPA wise. So college was not going to be in my near future. So I did find some way to do something with my life other than just kind of work from job to job. So the military was a great option. So as an enlisted soldier, you were assigned both to the 75th Ranger Regiment and the 1st Special Forces Group at different times, obviously, in your career. How would you describe the differences between those two units and maybe provide some examples of how they're different and how they're the same? Well, my first unit was the Rangers. And as far as setting up a career for success, you, you could definitely do worse than joining the Rangers. They were very much into hammering the basics, the standards. He worked on discipline that I just did not have at the time. So it, it set my career up incredibly well by being in the Rangers right off the bat. It was incredibly challenging, but it was also rewarding because you were with just incredible people left and right to, to learn how to do it right. And, you know, he had examples of how to do it wrong and, and what happened when you did it wrong. So it was just a great learning environment for me all along. Leaving the Rangers to go to Special Forces, it was more individualistic. It was more personality driven. And you, you kind of acquired the personality of the team that you got on. Whatever team you were assigned to, you you adopted that personality. It was pretty much set and established by the team sergeant, and everyone in the team kind of matched that intensity or personality-wise, or you were invited to go to another team. And it's the nicest way to say that. So you completed Special Forces Engineer, Weapons, and Medical Sergeant's qualification courses during your time in the Special Forces. 
Describe to us the makeup of a special forces team and the training that is involved in these qualification courses. Well, a, a special forces A team is is made up of 12 personnel. It starts off with your officers, which is your 18 alpha or 180 alpha, your warrant officer. And then alphabetically, your Bravo is your weapon sergeant. Your Charlie is your engineer sergeant. Medic is the 18 Delta. And 18 Echo is your communication sergeant. Then you have kind of a more senior person that is the 18 Fox or the Intel, an operation sergeant. And then the team sergeant is the 18 Zulu. And that is your senior person, enlisted, senior enlisted on the team. Now, I didn't start off and intend to to do all of those individual training courses. I was in, in the Rangers as a communicator. I was a telecommunication center operator, but I took a combat lifesaver course and said, hey, this medicine stuff is pretty cool. And I wanted to be a medic. So I left the Rangers to go to special forces to be a medic. But at the time, they, they didn't want me to be a medic. They wanted me to be an engineer because I had outstanding math scores. So I tried to reason with them and say, well, I'm not an engineer right now. Why would you want me to be an engineer? And they said, do you want to stay a, a combo sergeant in the Rangers? So I said, all right, I'll be an engineer. So part of that training, and you're training to be do a lot of jobs on that special forces team, but one of those that's critical is that 18 Delta, that medical training. Can you tell us a little bit about the time it took for that training to take place and what kind of stuff did you do? Well, the, the 18 Delta course back when I went through was kind of two phase. The first phase was at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. And that portion of the course was called the 300 F1. And it was... Roughly, and I'm going in the Wayback Machine here, it was about 10 months long. That's if you went straight through. It was pretty common to be recycled at any portion of that. And so you fell back to wherever the last class, you know, the class behind you was. Sometimes that was a smooth transition and sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes you had to go all the way back depending on what portion of the course you failed. So once you made it through the 300 F1 course in San Antonio, then you PCS'd from San Antonio to Fort Bragg and then you attended the the SFMS, the Special Forces Medical Sergeant portion or med lab. And that's where you did all of your trauma medicine training. And then that was about roughly two months. And then after you completed that, then depending on, depending on the time, you did phase one, which was small unit tactics, and that was a month. And then the last phase was phase three, and that was Robin Sage. That is the, the infamous two-week training called Robin Sage that is in rural North Carolina. So you had this experience as an enlisted special forces and ranger pre-9-11, but there was a lot of other stuff going on. There was Desert Shield, Desert Storm, Panama, Haiti, a bunch of things in, I'm sure, undisclosed locations. Any particular memories that stand out to you as an enlisted medical sergeant? When I was in Okinawa. I was stationed at 1st Battalion, 1st Special Forces Group in Okinawa. I showed up in late September, early October, and that December was when they had the, the coup attempt in the Philippines. It was in 89. And when I showed up, I was a communication sergeant. This is kind of where I took a detour and I wasn't quite a medic yet, but this was during that time frame. I was still a communicator. And the short version was I got a DUI while I was in the Charlie course but I finished the school portion of it, the MOS portion, but I wasn't allowed to go to the last three week portion in phase three. And so my worldwide assignment was Okinawa into a special forces unit, which was like, I had a, I had a nice little guardian angel looking out for me. So my options at that point were to go back to the Ranger regiment and 
leaving, when you leave the Ranger Regiment, if you're not in a body cast, you're ostracized. You're just, you cannot go back. And I can't go, I couldn't go back having failed the 18 Charlie course, the engineer course, because of my idiot mistake, my indiscretion, so however you want to paraphrase that. And had I gone back to the Rangers, then I would have went to Panama. So it's kind of interesting that, that I didn't go back, but I did go to a first group in Okinawa and ended up going to the Philippines because of a coup attempt. And of course, there were no rounds fired during that time. As soon as as soon as soon the F-4s took off from Clark Air Base, the, the rebels were like, oh, oh, hold on, we're done. Tap, we're done. So I kind of kind of got to experience that. But the, the, I guess the interesting story of that was I was a commo guy and they had an order of merit list to see who was going to go to the Philippines to be commo. And having been a commo guy in the Rangers, I knew every radio system front and back with my eyes closed. And so I went up to my platoon sergeant and I said, because I was at the bottom of the list because I was the latest guy to show up. And I was like, who on that list knows more about radios than I do? Like, why am I not the first person to go to Clark Air Base? And they said, well, how soon can you be packed? And I said, I'm a ranger, I'm packed right now. And so the next morning I took off and flew from Kadena Air Base to Clark Air Base and joined the coup as one of the common guys there. So that's kind of an interesting story about the first group. How about during Desert Shield, Desert Storm? Well, I was in Okinawa during that time frame, and there was a weapon sergeant and he flew in Farsi. And why he was in Okinawa in a, in a group, in a region that spoke Asian languages when he spoke fluent Farsi, why wasn't he in 5th Special Forces Group, which was everything about Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And so he fought tooth and nail to get transferred from 1-1 to 5th Group anywhere. And because that war happened so fast, by the time he had actually had orders to PCS, somebody finally agreed that yes, the, Fars the Farsi speaker should go to fifth group and partake in the war in the area where that language is 100% applicable. And by the time he had got his orders to go, it was over. So he ended up in fifth group and eventually I'm sure he, he did some, some good. So you then attended the Wake Forest School of Medicine Physician Assistant course in 2000. What made you want to become a physician assistant? I had about 15 years in at that point. And I had applied to the inner service PA program, the IPAP. And because I had so many years in, they weren't taking special forces medics to go to PA because to the military, I was more valuable as an 18 Delta than I would have been as a PA. They had, they had a surplus of PAs at the time. And I did a personal inventory and I was like, I think I'm worth more to myself and my family as a PA than I am as a special forces medic. And career wise, I was senior enough as an enlisted as an E7 that I kind of had to make the decision to pursue the route to become a Sergeant Major and do all of those operational jobs. And as a 18 Delta, that was an uphill battle. If you weren't operational, if you weren't an 18 Bravo or a Charlie, maybe, then then you just, 18 Deltas were not promoted and made Sergeant Majors unless they were the cream of the crop kind of thing. And you had to do all of those jobs. And so I had to, I had to make that decision. Do I want to go the Sergeant Major route or do I want to go to the medicine route? And so I decided to do medicine and finish my degree and then go to PA because the, the IPAP turned me down twice, even though I had a, a 4.0 science and a 3.9 overall GPA, I didn't meet the needs. And so I was turned down. So I got out and went to civilian school at Wake Forest. So given all that experience you had as an 18 Delta, how did that impact your experience during PA school? Did that give you a big leg up over the rest of the students? It did and it didn't. I was obviously a non-traditional student. There were half of my class was traditional students where they had graduated high school, went to undergraduate, got their degree, and then focused on the medicines and biologies and sciences. 
and went right into PA school. And then others were non-traditional like myself that did something other than medicine in school before they went back to PA school. There were a wide range of people in my class, somebody that was 20 years old that turned 21 in the first year, which I can't imagine doing that. Like me as a 20 year old would not do well in PA school at that time. So the, the 15 years that I took a detour through the military was what made me a good PA student because I had the discipline, I had the ability to study, had all that experience. But as far as that first year, the didactic portion of it, and I was non-traditional, I had to go back and learn how to study in a university environment. Now, when I got to the second year, when it was all the clinical rotations, that's where all my time as a, as a person in the Rangers, as a person in Special Forces, as an 18 Delta, my time in front of a patient, with patients, I was the calmest person in the room as far as how to deal with a patient in front of me because I had so many hours of already doing that experience. So yeah, that's where it really paid off. So after PA school, you sought additional training in a master's in PA studies at the University of Nebraska. Tell us about that training and why did you seek additional training? What did it add? At the time, I was in the National Guard. Uh, having finished the PA program, my first job was with a neurologist clinic that also did internal medicine and psychiatry and oriental medicine and acupuncture. So my learning curve was a cliff. And in that environment, I was constantly learning. And I figured that I would take advantage of the distance learning option through the University of Nebraska use some of my college fund to, to get the master's, which made me competitive with all my colleagues. When I went through the Wake Forest program at the time, it was just a certificate program. It wasn't a master's program. Now, two years later, it was elevated to a master's program. But when I went through, it was a certificate program. So I needed to do that to maintain equality with my colleagues. So when you were in the Guard, you decided to do the flight surgery course. What prompted that move into aeromedical area of expertise? All of the positions, both physician and PA within the special forces groups require that you're flight surgeon qualified, mainly because you perform all of the halo, high altitude, low opening physicals for the operators, but also to a lesser extent, you're doing the flight physicals for your colleagues, the other PAs and docs that are flight surgeons that need to maintain their currency. So you deployed to Iraq early after your PA training during the early entry operations. Do you have any memorable experiences from that deployment? Because I went through the guard and I was a direct commission to second lieutenant, when I deployed, I used that time to learn how to become a medical officer. I did the officer basic course, which with my time in the military was humorous, if you will, but it was a requirement and I had to check that block. But in all honesty, I didn't follow the traditional route to be a second lieutenant PA in a standard military unit where you really learn how to become a medical officer. It's the stuff that you kind of take for granted, but it's a process and it's not taught at any point during PA programs and even your OBC and all of those things. So it doesn't teach you how to become a medical officer. And during that time, I was more of a PA trained 18 Delta than I was a medical officer. I was a Lieutenant and I was a PA, but I was thinking like a special forces member of the team. And it took some experience during that trip to, to kind of learn what my job duties were and how I should think differently. I can't think like a PA trained 18 Delta. I need to think like a medical officer and how do I best position myself and take advantage of the operations to where I can do the most good as opposed to just being with one team. How can I position myself to where I can help multiple teams and multiple medics? And I learned some of it was easy. Some of it was difficult. So were there any particular medical cases that confronted you during that time when you were first deployed as a PA, as a second lieutenant? 
when I first got to Iraq, I did a tour of where all of the different battalions were. And one of the outstations was one of the most remote areas. It was called Fob War Horse near Bakuba in, in Iraq. And I showed up to kind of see what was going on. And it turns out that one of the former 18 Deltas that I knew was a PA there in the clinic. And so I went over to the clinic just to talk to him and see how things were going. And I was hanging out talking and right as a mass casualty came in and they were like, hey, you're a PA, right? I was like, yeah. She goes, hey, would you run a table for us? Sure. So I walked over into a clinic that I literally just walked by the bay and had no idea where anything was. And so they said, this is your table. And I had two medics that were assigned to me on that table. One of them that had flew in a week before me and the other one flew in on the same flight that I did. So he didn't know anything about the clinic either. And so as we were kind of introducing ourselves and figuring out what we were going to do, we were figuring out all this on the fly. And so the patient that they told us we were going to get for our table was a, an abdominal injury patient. And so we were expecting an abdominal injury. So the patient showed up and sure enough, they had a couple of holes in their belly, but they had other injuries too. They had holes through their chest. I had a big wrap around the head and all kinds of scarring and bleeding everywhere. So I'm unwrapping the bandage on his head and I realized that this patient also has a depressed skull fracture. So now my biggest concern for this patient isn't the abdominal injury or the extra holes in his thorax. It's also look at the, looking at the brain matter that I'm seeing. So I could tell that both medics were incredibly stressed out by this. And so I just paused and looked up at him and I said, hey, take a deep breath. This is training. Everything we're going to do right now is going to be for his benefit, but there's no pressure right now. It's going to happen how it's going to happen, right? Because this was a local national and no matter what we did, they were going to be turned over to the local medical authorities and they just, they don't have the infrastructure to take care of this patient, even if they had survived, which they did through the time that we had them there wasn't the infrastructure to take care of this patient. Their quality of life, if they lived, was going to be nil. And so we worked through all of the procedures to take care of this patient. And it was amazing because it happened way faster than we anticipated because they were more calm dealing with that situation. And we went from having a cup of coffee or something and talking to somebody to five minutes later dealing with a multi-polytrauma patient that you haven't had any time to deal with the environment. I didn't know where anything was. I didn't know the people that I was working with. We ended up doing procedures, putting chest tubes in, intubating them, ran blood, ran total IV sedation. We did all of this inside of 30 minutes. And there was a medevac we put him on and took him to the next level and on to the next patient. But that was, how do you go from zero to 101 in the blink of an eye? That you mentioned, and most people re recognize that a lot of the patients that the U.S. forces took care of in Iraq and Afghanistan were local nationals. Did you have the opportunity to consult with some of the, the local doctors? Because you really can't hold these patients on your FOB and medevacking them out to launch duel or out of the country is not a viable option. So what would you do with those patients? Uh, at various times during the deployment, we would go to hospitals and see the hospitals and see what was going on. But there were operational things that we had to be uh, aware of and sensitive to because uh, depending on where we were, if anybody from the hospital was seen discussing with us or, or talking with us and we were spending any time there, they would come in and destroy anything that we did. If we left supplies, they would pilfer the supplies and take them away. So we had to be creative in how to support the people that, that wanted our help, but also knew that the minute we left, they were in danger. And so how do we 
how do we navigate that? And sometimes we were successful and sometimes we weren't. And the times that we weren't, we hopefully learned from those mistakes that led to some successes later. So you also had two more deployments to Afghanistan. Were there any distinct differences in the care delivery between the two theaters of war that you remember? The differences between Iraq and Afghanistan were pretty vast, but each of the each of my three deployments, and that's nothing compared to some of the colleagues that I work with, they had double-digit deployments, high double-digit deployments. And I feel, I feel ridiculous mentioning that I had three in a short period of time. But apples to apples, things were dramatically different. Afghanistan, my first trip to Afghanistan, I was at the command level. So I was at the Command Joint Special Operations Task Force, Siege of to Afghanistan level, where I was working with the, the commander. I was the command surgeon as a junior captain. Now, my white hair wasn't exactly as white as it is now, but I was one of the older captains at the time. So I had all that operational experience beforehand. Honestly, I didn't do a whole lot of clinical medicine during that trip. It was more command and staff, but it was probably one of the more difficult because you could see everything that was going on and it was incredibly frustrating to watch it happen and know that you couldn't help the people on the ground. You only could be in position to deal with them when they were injected into the evacuation system. So you were trying to coordinate things that were very much out of your control. And that's incredibly frustrating. Um, but I kind of took it on myself to, to work with and educate the, the command. When the commander says, hey, I need an update, and that gets passed on down through the line, when the commander asks for an update, that eventually translates into the medic stopping treating the patient to give somebody an update and pass that up. And that's not the commander's intent. First and foremost, they want to make sure that the medic at point of injury is doing everything they can for the patient. And so letting them know, hey, that injury is serious. This is the one. This is how I'm going to take care of this. This is what that is. You have to translate from what you're seeing either in, in reports or what you're watching on the predator. A lot of times we were watching the operation take place and we could see the injuries by watching the video feeds and to let the commander know what kind of injury that was and what's the most likely thing and what's the worst thing that that could be and try to prepare from that. But mainly it was just trying to educate the, the line to not stop the medic from treating the patient so you could get an update on what they're doing. My second deployment was more operational where I was the SODIF PA for my battalion. And in that one where I had kind of learned from my previous deployments, I understood how to become a medical officer. I would look at the operational plans and what was coming up and then where where could I best position myself to do the most good and where that ended up most likely was being on the medevac aircraft. We would coordinate with the different evacuation units and show up and be all ready in kit and say, hey, this little radio that I'm wearing on my chest is connected to the operation. So if you see me running across the airfield to come to you guys, we're about to take off. And and that translated oftentimes into the aircraft taking off before the nine line was even, you know, filed because we had such rapport with them that when they saw us coming, we we're like, all right, we know that there's an operation. We would give them heads up. We know that somebody was injured. A nine line is coming and then we're going to take off. So we, a lot of times that would shorten the evacuation time just by having that rapport with them and being connected to the operation that was going on. And if you're the medic on the ground, who do you want to transfer your teammate most of the time to? You want to transfer to obviously a well-qualified flight medic and crew, but for them to look into the aircraft and say, hey, Bill, how you doing? Hey, this is Sam, the patient. It's like, and I know Sam, so I'm going to take care of them. So it's not, you're handing them over to somebody that cares about this patient as much or more than you do. So by this time, you've had 
20 plus years of experience with patients and in the military. And now you're deployed in Afghanistan and you're seeing new medics that are coming out and maybe a year before they were in the high school band and now they're in Afghanistan as a medic. What was your impression of the medics that you were working with when you were there? Were they prepared to do what they were doing or do we need to do something different to, to make them better prepared? That's a really difficult question. You can only be so prepared, right? You can do all the training right. It's, uh, I remember a quote from when I went through SEER training, one of the NCOs wrote on there, it's what you do after you know it all that counts. And, and that stuck with me forever. You could be the top person in your class and know everything and know exactly on what page it was written and what portion of the page and what color was the graph and all that stuff. What do you do with that information? Can you execute? And even if they weren't as trained, it never ceases to amaze me how well the medics could perform under that pressure. And sometimes they did it obviously better than others, but it was just the application of the knowledge that they had from their training that always impressed me. So as a PA working with special forces, what were the biggest planning lessons you learned during your career? I think the biggest one was just trying to understand what the team was going through when they were planning and where they were going and understanding where their points of failure would present themselves. And then going down and speaking with the medics and understanding and communicating with them. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? And kind of giving them some pointers from when I was on a team to where they are. And then I could interject what I had learned in how to be being a medical officer. Sometimes they got bogged down in some of the details where they could just take a, take a, a half a step back and kind of see the overall picture a little bit better. That was probably the biggest lesson and the biggest thing that I brought to the table, helping them plan. And then saying, hey, here's where your gap is. If I go to this location and if I'm in this, in this position, then I can fill that gap. And then they didn't have to worry about it. And so kind of figuring that out on the fly, because every mission was completely different. Even if we did something that seemed on paper to be the exact same thing, the execution was always slightly different. And just to be available for that. One of the things that we've really seen take off in medicine is point of care ultrasound. And there's advanced training to do that. Now, you were ahead of the curve and you really developed and promoted a thing called special operator level clinical ultrasound, Sulcus, and served as a consultant to the Special Force Medical Group for clinical and tactical ultrasound. Tell us about what led to that and how was that used at the point of care in austere locations? So the the name was in existence before I was part of the training. That was something that Andrew Morgan, my battalion doc, and Sean Keenan, who you've interviewed, kind of came up with. And my biggest decision on there was to to not change it because of the legacy that, that it started. At this point, ultrasound, point of care ultrasound devices are small enough that you could consider using it at point of injury. But oftentimes, as far as the, the prolonged field care paradigm, there's ruck, truck, house, plane, and this is more in the truck or house locations. It's not with you in your aid bag, even though there are some really small devices out there. Some units will carry them and use them at point of injury, but most of the special forces medics will keep them perhaps in a vehicle or at their team aid station. But it is definitely a, a versatile tool to help them along the lines of figuring out what's wrong with their patient. I think the biggest advantage is you can suspect what's going on based on your history and your physical exam. But if you use this tool, then oftentimes what's going on, or at least that there's a fracture, there's bleeding, there's foreign body or whatever you're suspecting clinically based on your history and your exam, this will kind of help you confer. And that 
oftentimes changes how you treat the patient. You served as the chair of the U.S. Special Operations Command sponsored Prolonged Field Care Telemedicine Subcommittee Working Group. Describe to us briefly the concept of prolonged field care, the challenges of providing this care, and how telemedicine helps improve this care. The SOCOM sponsored this prolonged field care working group. And because of my assignments being at the time, I was about to head to Special Operations Command Africa. And there was one theater special operations command that was supposed to manage all of the special operations units on the continent. That's a large area, three times the size of the size of the continental U.S. It's a lot of areas. And for the first two years of my assignment, I, myself and my surgeon, Jim Lynch, were the go-to people to call if, if any of the units down there had telemedicine concerns or any issues with something. So for the first two years, I never screened my BlackBerry. <laughs> and so we had to come up with somewhat of a better system. Telemedicine helps bridge the gap. Prolonged field care is taking care of a, a really sick patient longer than you want to. And you can't possibly have all of the personnel, equipment, supplies, or training to, to handle all of those areas. And so with telemedicine, it gives you a capability to call somebody that is an expert, that isn't under the gun, that doesn't have a really sick patient sitting in front of them that they may or may not know causing stress. Hopefully they've gotten some sleep and they're well-fed and they're hydrated. And so they can give you a better answer on how to manage your really sick patient when you don't have everything that you need, whatever that is, personnel, equipment, supplies, training. So, so can you give us any specific examples of how that teleconsultation concept worked in reality? So initially it was my BlackBerry and Jim's BlackBerry number added to every op order for every mission that took place on the continent, which for them was an easy answer because it was just put this number down or these numbers down. And that was their answer. If you have a question, call this number. But for myself and, and Dr. Lynch, that was, that was not the best option. So there was a, there was a third person, Dr. Jeremy Pamplin, who was working as an internal medicine, critical care doc, pulmonary critical care. And he came up with a good idea. Why don't we do a virtual critical care consultation, VC3? where he would get a bunch of his critical care doc friends to agree to be on call and to be that expert at the other end of the line when there was something going on. And so we kind of worked that out and worked out the books. He was working it from an organizational and a procedural way to have these critical care docs available and set up the system so they could answer the phone. And myself and Colonel Lynch would work with the operational units to make sure that Whatever your primary is, which is the easiest, the most consistent and most reliable person you, you could call for help. And that, that's going to be based on the unit. But your backup should be the advisor line, which is at the time, it was just the virtual critical care consultation line where you would call an 800 number and they would connect you with a critical care doc that would kind of talk you through your situation. There was a, they wrote it up afterwards and there was probably some 53 real world calls that, that they had dealt with over a period of time. And it was incredibly successful. I mean, it's, it's advanced too. Now there's a operational virtual health that works out of San Antonio. That's the, the end result of all of that work and training. There's a whole new system that's in place called the advisor. It's uh, takes a lot of training calls, takes a lot of real world calls, and it covers multitude of specialties, some specialties to, to help with whatever kind of patient you have. So where do you think that this will go in the future? What are the limits? Can, let's say you're somewhere you're in a prolonged field care environment and the patient needs some kind of surgery and you have the equipment there, but you don't have a surgeon and you can't get the patient out. Is, is this technology, 
something that could be used in that scenario? Well, the short answer is yes, but the answer before that question would require that your scope of practice is still, is not going to be changed because there's an advisor line. I could speak to a surgeon, but they're not going to talk me through cracking a chest, right? They're going to try and manage whatever reasonable procedure, whether it's talking through somebody through an escarotomy or if you special operations medic, 18 Delta or special operations combat medic, 68 whiskey, whiskey one, they might be able to talk you through a two incision, four compartment fasciotomy of your lower extremity. Those are pretty complex procedures. One of the things I was working with at U.S. Army Special Operations Command right before I retired was a study on telestration where you would have a surgeon on the end of the line and you would use video connect where you had a augmented reality goggle on that you would be staring at the patient on the limb and then the surgeon who was in a remote location could see what you were looking at. They could draw on one of their special screens that you would see through your augmented reality glasses. And so they could kind of guide you on where to cut. You would draw your temporary lines. I mean, you know, pre-space age stuff that can be incredibly helpful if you've maybe seen one of these, but you've never done one or you've done one, but it was a long time ago and you don't remember and you're stressed and tired all that. So, I mean, it definitely could assist in some scenario. The downside to that is it requires pretty outstanding internet capability, which at this point generally doesn't exist on the battlefield. Now, now is there a way that they could make the, the surgeon's voice sound like John Madden when they were doing wish. this illustration? I wish. Yeah, there's a lot of bam, boom. Exactly. A lot of X's and O's and not in a good way. You also helped develop the African snakebite and antivenom training adopted as the standard by the U.S. Army Africa Command. Why was this a problem and what are the principles of care with African snakebites? A lot of the policy for the medics on, on the ground is dictated by the AFRICOM Surgeon's Office and the Special Operations Command Surgeon's Office. And when I showed up there, the previous surgeon had a policy of no one will have antivenin because when you have a snake bite, you have one problem. If you use an antivenin, the antivenin that was, was available to them was wrought with reactions. And so instead of having one problem and maintaining that, you developed one into three or four problems. And so that policy was that nobody got antivenin because you weren't really, not that you weren't trained, but you weren't staffed to handle with the complications of utilizing the antivenin, which is clearly the treatment of choice for a snake bite. And if you talk to any special operations medic or the PAs that were working with them or the docs that were working with them, every one of them wanted it. Well, at the time, the dose was anywhere from 10 to 20 vials at a couple hundred dollars a pop. So thankfully, most of that, when it was in theater, expired unused, right? I mean, you want to have it as an insurance policy, but you also don't want to throw thousands of dollars away because it's going to go unexpired on you. So Jim Lynch was very adamant of let's find the right answer. And so he sent me on a field trip to kind of go around Africa and learn about snake bites. What are the most common ones? What are the most dangerous ones? Answering the simple question, how do you treat snake bites without antivenin? And so I got to go around and, and learn a lot about snake bites. And we kind of summarized it to three major areas. One of them was a neurotoxic bite. Neurotoxic bites kill patients because it paralyzes them and they can't breathe. All the special operations medics know how to control an airway. They can crike somebody, they can intubate somebody, and they can bag or ventilate somebody. So they have that ability to treat a neurotoxic envenomation with, without antivenin. It's not ideal, but 
you know, that's an option, right? So if you tell a medic and teach them how to manage that type of bite, then they would feel less, obviously they want antivenin, but if they don't have it, they at least know that they can take an airway and control it and bag somebody until they could get them to antivenin. The next one is a cytotoxin uh, bite where it just kills the cells. It generally doesn't kill the patient, but they will require surgery to debride the wound because it destroys muscle and tissue. That's prepares the whatever is bitten for ingestion by the snake, right? So that's painful. We know how to treat pain. So they're not going to die because most of our operators are otherwise healthy individuals. And so they're going to have to go to surgery to get the wound debrided, but they're not going to die from these wounds because we will get them out before that case. So we can manage that. The third and incredibly rare is, is a hemotoxin patient. There's very few snakes in Africa that will give you a hemotoxic envenomation. Now, at the extreme end of the cytotoxic envenomation, you can lead to hemotoxic presentations, but it's kind of secondary and they're usually out of theater by then. And by no means am I a snake expert, but this is kind of what we've learned through that process. And so the end result was the answer is always somewhere in the middle. It's not nobody getting it and it's not everybody getting it. It's at key locations. We had different locations that were either co-located with an aircraft for evacuation to where they could fly the antivenin and personnel to help manage the side effects to the location when they pick the patient up, or they could get the patient to that location and then where the antivenin is there and a team that would be able to manage the not only the administration of it, but the complications from it. And so that's that's kind of was a happy medium. It wasn't perfect. Everyone, not everyone was happy, but they understood why. And we just educated them on how the process works. That's very interesting to me because I I've been in the military or had been in the military for 30 plus years and never really recognized snake bites as something that was significant, never was deployed in Africa. What kind of volume of patients did you see and did you treat local nationals or just coalition forces? You don't want to say none, but I'll say our N was five minus five. I believe there was potentially one snake bite but I don't know if that's been confirmed or or not. Now, every snake that you see that's dark is a black mamba. If you just talk to every one of them, it's just, it's what it is. It was going 100 miles an hour. Yeah. What's interesting is most of the training, after teaching these guys what they were looking for, you could not only tell how the symptoms and how the, present, how the patient would present after a bite, but what were the characteristics of a bite? If it was a neurotoxic bite, they'd, stung you. And a lot of times the, the fangs were so small, you might not even realize it. You might feel something or you might because it's neurotoxin and they don't have to hold on to you because they're going to paralyze you. The, the snake kind of knows it. Whereas if it's a cytotoxic bite, it's kind of like getting hit by George Foreman. They're going to hit you hard and they're going to hold on because the venom that they put into you is going to degrade the cells, but you could take off and travel long before you're going to die. So they have to hold on to their prey until it dies. And that way the venom will digest, break down the cells. So it makes it so they can consume whatever they're eating. So the characteristic of the bite will tell you kind of what kind of envenomation you're going to, you're going to, you're dealing with. But it's one of those I'd rather read about it, but then experience it. But, but like I said, it was, it was incredibly rewarding for me to kind of learn all that stuff. And then when you, you're talking to the medics or even the, the non-medics that are the team members, we had one of them, we were describing where the snakes kind of hang out. And they were like, we spend all these, all this money on gators and I have to walk around. I probably should have got a cone of shame because they're all sitting in the trees. You know, they just patrol with a cone of shame on to protect the snake from getting to them. Eh, it's one of those funny in the moment. So you currently are a partner for a company called Ragged Edge Solutions. What does Ragged Edge Solutions do? 
Ragged Edge Solutions, or RES, teaches prolonged field care to military and civilian medics and their non-medic teammates. We, we run two to three days of classroom didactics. We add cadaver training. We do team dynamics, and then we put them through an extended realistic training scenario with live action role players where they get to experience and perfect. We, we do more training and mentoring than we do grading and assessing, if you will. But we train the medics to start pulling back and using their medical decision capabilities. And we train their non-medic teammates to be assets instead of liabilities. And we teach them to do all of those things that are incredibly important, but easy to train somebody that's not medically trained. You can teach somebody to collect vital signs and document them and provide some basic nursing care and wound changes and administer medications. Even more advanced as to collect blood through threshold blood, walking blood bank processes, and then turn around and give that blood. And it's incredibly fun to do something like that because I think I learn something from every class as much as we uh, we train them. They bring their operational experience and they get to look at it with fresh eyes and ask us questions and then we kind of think our way through the answer because oftentimes it's just not written down anywhere because it's a unique situational question. One of the things that we found talking to folks who are in military medicine is that one of the differences that we see is that in the civilian side, sometimes it's kind of an individual sport, but as a senior enlisted, as an officer, you're expected to have leadership and leadership qualities. What would you say is the best leadership advice that you got throughout your career? And if somebody junior came to you, what kind of advice would you give them about being a leader? Somebody recommended to me early on that I should find three people. One person is somebody that's doing something that I want to do, that is doing it very well and talk to them about how they got to the point where they could do that. And you find another person that's at my level that's my experience or whatever as a PA, and they're doing it better than I am and talk to them and figure out what are, how are they doing it better than me? There's always somebody that, that knows it a little bit more. And then find somebody that is doing what you used to do that is doing it better than you did it and talk to them because there's something to learn at all of those levels and then just share that knowledge. Do you have a, a mentor that is memorable to you that sticks out? And what was it about that person that, that really helped you? I have many mentors. <laughs> I've been fortunate to, to work with some amazing people. You've interviewed five of them and I will pick one because they're all incredibly valuable, but, but I've been very fortunate in my career that I have plenty of mentors that, I'm, that I've utilized and benefited from. For you, what would you say is a common denominator? You don't have to name names, but what, what makes a good mentor? I think that they're incredibly humble and they're amazingly good at what they do. They learn from everything, not just what goes right, but what goes wrong. And whether they say you're, you're, you're smart if you learn from your mistakes, but you're really intelligent if you can learn from somebody else's mistakes, you say that in fewer words, but, but definitely it applies. So if your future family were to unearth this podcast 100 years from now, what would you want them to hear about your career in military medicine? This is the one that I've regretted the most because I don't have a great answer. Honestly, the military has benefited me so much because I came in at a time when the tagline on the commercial was be all you can be. And so I was just naive enough to believe them and just stubborn enough to not let no keep me from being all I could be. 
We've been speaking with retired Army Major Bill Vashis on Wardock's podcast. Bill, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thanks for your service to the nation. Thank you for your service and thank you for having me. This has been incredibly uh, fun to, to take a trip down some memory lanes. And hopefully I, I said something that is useful and helpful to others. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's wardocspodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardocs has you covered. Spread the word.